You're listening to World Building for Masochists. And we're wondering why we do this to ourselves. Because contemplating the vastness of the universe is way more overwhelming than making up a few dozen planets for a novel. I'm Valerie Valdez. I'm Rowena Miller. I'm Marshall Ryan Maresca, and this is episode 82, From One Note World to Complete Space Operas. Welcome back, listeners, to another episode of World Building for Masochists, where we are delighted to welcome our special guest, Valerie Valdez. Valerie, hi! Hello! Thank you for asking me to be here. It is an honor and a pleasure. We're excited to dive into talking more about building out space opera worlds and all of that fun stuff. But first, we would love to hear a little bit about you. Would you mind telling us about yourself and your work? Sure thing. I am the author of Chilling Effect, Prime Deceptions, and the forthcoming Fault Tolerance, which may in fact be the recently published Fault Tolerance, depending on when this, when you're listening to this episode. Uh, this is a trilogy of found family space opera stories about a spaceship captain and her crew, uh, which includes an accidentally permanent cargo turned passengers of psychic cats. Uh, I also write short fiction, poetry, <laughs> uh, the occasional essay and article, and I've taught various craft classes for places like Clarion West uh, on things like outlining. I'm also part of the Strange Friends crew of tabletop RPG players, and I stream video games uh, most weeknights on Twitch. So just a little busy, just a little. <laughs> Only a couple of things, you know, it's, it's a very, very empty life that I lead. I have to. I have a psychic cat, yes. and we, we are on video, even though our listeners cannot see this. You have two additional um, co-guests with you. Are, are those your only your only cats, and are they inspiration at all? I have had I have had a maximum of four cats in my house with me. Uh, I grew up with cats in various forms. My dad has always had cats, pretty much, and uh, in my mom's house we have had dogs. We have had cats. She now has also a plethora of cats. So I have I've been around cats most of my life. I am I'm somewhat familiar with their intricacies. Uh, we can can we. Try truly F the ineffable that is the cat, but I do my best. I, I, I too, am a, I'm, I'm a cat person, so I, I always appreciate a real life or a fictional oh, yes. cat, and they probably all are psychic, so probably it's fair. And if my math and calendaring is correct, this should be out right the day after your book comes out? I'm not 100% sure, but it's certainly very exciting. Oh, and exciting. It's, it's a beautiful book that's covered in psychic cats, so therefore <laughs> on brand <laughs> i i've been i've been super fortunate uh julie dylan is the cover artist and every time that i have any kind of an idea for what should go on the cover um she manages to take it and make it like more than i could have ever imagined and for this one it was basically okay can you have a really giant robot hand and then as many cats as you can literally fit into <laughs> just maximum of 20 but as many as possible and she did an amazing Excellent. job that's always that's always the dream when when your cover artists will take it beyond what you would have even visualized yourself and make and make what was in your brain into something real absolutely well, we wanted to dive into talking about space opera because that is what this latest 
book is and what you write so well, Valerie. Um, but before we kind of get into the nitty gritty of the world building itself, um, like how how do we define space opera anyway? Is it is it definable? Can we define it? Uh, I think so. And I think that that definition, as with many genres and subgenres of fiction, is going to vary from person to person. If you go to Wikipedia, it'll talk about like, oh, it's basically soap opera, but in space, and it has war and colonies and all this stuff. And I think that a lot of space opera does have kind of those elements, right? Um, I... I would say it is it is a sci-fi subgenre. It usually focuses on, I think, adventures in space. Although, of course, the the variety of adventures that may or may not be occurring can can change. Uh, it can include aliens, uh, romance, action, technology, indistinguishable from magic. I, I will we'll probably get to that later. Just the notions of the wiggle room that space opera provides for tech that it can be different from other sci-fi. Uh, it, it does also often involve war and empires um, and usually tends to have at least a large scope physically, even if the scope is maybe smaller emotionally. Like, you can tell very personal stories, but kind of writ larger across a broader universe. Um, I, th- I think that, that traveling from place to place can be a hallmark of uh, space opera. One way I love to think about it is that space opera is epic fantasy wearing sci-fi's clothing. <laughs> I think that's a good way to think about it. And I think that you, again, you can have kind of smaller space opera stories, more personal space opera stories. They may even all occur on a single planet, but still kind of be identifiably identifiably space opera. Um, I think planetary fantasy is another name for that. There are some other kind of like subgenre terms that, that get thrown around. But uh, but yeah, it, it's, I feel like like <laughs> high, high epic fantasy uh, in space is, is a, a good way of thinking about it. And I feel like these are like some of these hallmarks of of the genre are why it's so well loved. I mean, when you ask people, you know, especially just, you know, general populace, not even like our little niche corner of nerds, like what their favorite sci-fi is, often it's space opera because those those elements are so I mean, they're they're enjoyable. They're they're fun. They're fun to dive into and and it invites that kind of diving into an immersion and having fun with it. Yeah, I, I think that um, especially now that we have the, ta- the telescope, which I'm going to bring up probably multiple <laughs> times in the stream because it just it's happened. So we cool. just got it's this amazing so picture cool. of space. <gasps> we cannot overemphasize how cool it is because frankly, it's amazing. Um, but I think that one of the other hallmarks of space opera tends to be just kind of an uh, easy interplanetary travel in a way that potentially is not physically possible. We talk about FTL being a thing that technology simply cannot do no matter how much we wish it could. But uh, space opera can then deploy like slightly higher levels of hand wavium, I think, uh, as opposed to other sci-fi. And it can take place anywhere from the near future, it, looking at something maybe like Mass Effect, which is contempt- it's technically potentially military uh, sci-fi as opposed to space opera. But I think that sometimes those genres blur. Um, but it can also take place uh, in the really far future or a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. So you have a really great uh, scope, a, a breadth of possibilities possibilities within uh, space opera that can be explored in a lot of different ways. And it, it does overlap, I think, with fantasy sometimes, like Marshall was saying, um, because because the tech can often be more magical than realistic. Uh, you think of stuff like the Force or Psychic Cats. Um, and then sometimes people just deliberately blur the genres, thinking of stuff like Space Unicorn Blues by T.J. Barry, uh, or even like Spelljammer in the D&D universe, or like Marvel has been doing stuff with Thor that can be very fantasy tech 
blendy. Are you suggesting here that psychic cats are not a purely scientific phenomenon? I wouldn't dream of suggesting that. <laughs> I I am allowing that some people may believe that to be true, but I myself. <laughs> like, I think one of the, for me, like, one of the things that separates space opera from hard sci-fi is, like, sort of the amount of miracles you allow yourself allow the world to have like hard sci-fi is usually like there is you know here is our fdl and i have done the math on the fdl to to make sure everything's right (laughs) nothing else like will go apart from what's known science of how we know space travel will work or reasonable extrapolations of known science about that and space opera is like this is the ship how does it work i turn it on that's how it works what am i a mechanic i didn't build this ship i just i can't even change the oil right. on the dang thing forget that, about it that a lot of times in space opera it is that ships are effectively cars in that like you're just like i'm just using this i need, I need to pop over to another solar system to pick up a quart of milk and that is <laughs> put as essentially normal within the context of the world or the, the yeah, sprawl. Absolutely. Or it's a very expensive quart of milk and it's a big deal. Yeah. Like uh, thinking also by uh, Amber Royer has, has uh, her chocolate books. Um, oh yeah. And those it's it. Yeah. Positing chocolate as like the commodity that uh, earth is responsible for basically. And people will just kill for yeah, it. That's that, that is a beautiful little concept of like, Chocolate is the thing that is unique to Earth that every other alien is like, oh my god, I need chocolate. Which is how space economies maybe should work. Because, like, gold, who cares? Mm-hmm. But chocolate, that, that's unique. <laughs> there's, t- there's tangible yeah. value there. Oh, I mean, yeah. sure, gold is shiny. It's pretty, but... It conducts well, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. Can't eat it. Not, Not delicious. Unless... I mean, it I depends on your aliens. Unless. It depends on your aliens. Maybe <laughs> for some of them, it is delicious. And, it's true. And exactly what they need in their in their diet. Who knows? <laughs> Which is also part of the fun thing in, in building space opera worlds is that you can, you can push weirdness in a way that... I think even in fantasy, you can't necessarily... I don't say can't, but like you'll get a little more pushback having certain things in fantasy that you wouldn't in space opera like if you have you know a rock creature that eats gold and makes babies by holding hands over lavas you know fine good go for it but you know even in a fantasy people would be like huh okay <laughs> not sure about that it requires particular tone it requires particular, particular tone tonal yeah. quality there because <laughs> you hit that tone and i am buying it like i'm buying it <laughs> hook line and sinker if, if that's the tone that's that's being achieved and that's hard to do i'm not downplay that because that is difficult to hit that kind of tone i guess offshoot from that any favorite space operas that come to mind and what makes them so good yeah i mean i uh in in terms of books i think that I strangely have not read a ton of space opera, especially not recent space opera, though I do maintain a list because I like to know what's happening out there, which I think is really good and important. Um, and so I can tell you a lot of ones I want to read as well. <laughs> um, we all read far less. Oh, yeah. So much oh, yeah. No which worries. is terrible. It's a tribulation. Um, definitely going back to stuff like the Vorkosigan saga. Um, definitely amazing books. A lot of cool stuff and nuance in there. I saw a cover recently for one of the books that was apparently just wildly inaccurate to the contents. And I was like, of course it is. It's just like half-naked women. What are you going to do? Um, but... Uh, things also like uh, Ancillary Justice and Lecky, 
Um, One of my favorite ones that I actually have read recently is Annihilation Area by Mike Underwood. And that one is kind of like uh, The Mummy meets Farscape in space. It's very fun. And um, the... One of the characters is basically a paladin bard, and that's the thing I didn't know I needed in my life until it happened. And then it was a delight. So that one has been really Sold. great. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. <laughs> I, I super, super into that and the world building uh, on display there. I know you've had Mike on, on the show before. And we know Mike, but still, yes, yes. you said so. the mummy meets Farscape and sold sold (laughs) yeah no that that book is just it's deeply fun and and thoughtful and i love the characters and and i love that it is a married couple because you don't necessarily get a lot of that in sci-fi and certainly on space opera many stories are about the building of relationships the developing of relationships they don't immediately start with a character's already in a relationship and that's something that uh again i i didn't necessarily know that i needed it until i had it and then it was like i can't imagine not having this, it's great. Yeah, I mean, kind of side note, but I totally agree. I feel like we need more of that in the genre of not just the like starting a relationship, yeah. but like that maintaining a relationship mm-hmm. and like that that mature relationship that that's not necessarily firecrackers and and initial stars in the eyes, yeah. but it's like, did you buy milk? Yeah. No. So I'm gonna have to go to the next galaxy and on the way from picking up some soccer. Pro- okay. Yeah. All right. That's cool. All right. But also that the relationship <laughs> being in peril is never a thing. Like. No matter what other chaos mm-hmm. is happening, that bond is is just like rock solid. Like, yeah, that's my crack. I love that. Oh, yeah. And I think in space opera is really interesting because depending on how you're constructing the space opera, you have these people who are potentially shoved together for like 100 hours at a time, if not more. It's basically 24-7. You are in this person's face. Maybe you can retreat to different parts of the ship. Maybe you can't if it's not a very big ship. And so uh, dealing with those kinds of interpersonal relationships, I think, is also kind of a hallmark of space opera. Again, when I first started, I talk about, you know, my books are found family books. It's a spaceship crew and they are they are family for each other. And most of them are the kinds of different kinds of misfits that have lost their families for different reasons in different ways and uh, some of them actually do still have their families but they didn't want to stay with their families for reasons and so they have each other um, and I think that that sort of leaning towards the relationships um, is is a feature of space opera less so than of other kinds of sci-fi. Again, this is generalizations entirely. This is not to say that sci-fi does not have strong relationships between characters, but but I do think that going back to the idea of space opera as a kind of soap opera, it does tend to emphasize those interpersonal relationships in ways that uh, other sci-fi may not be as concerned with, maybe is a a way of saying it. I I love the whole, we shoved them in a spaceship for a hundred hours together and they just have to deal because it's kind of like the road trip trope yes but like taken to a whole nother level it's the road trip and trope I love it. if it's the road trip trope plus there's only one bed <laughs> yeah. depending on how small the ship is depending on how small the ship is yeah i mean there may in fact be more than one bed but there may only be one room so it's kind of like that where you're like all right well we're just we are stuck with each other and uh <laughs> are we going to eat at different times you know and, and especially um in my books you have like a captain crew relationship that's going on which is something that i had to be very careful about because that has the potential to have a lot of very ungood dynamics uh, in terms of power levels but uh it is a thing to think about right where it's like okay do you have rules against fraternization are you not allowed to deal with each other as you are doing the thing and um yeah there's there's a lot of potential for conflict and relationship issues there so 
Yeah, and the way that space opera can like play with trope, I just think is really fun because oh, yeah. it often does play with trope in such fun ways. Yeah, yeah. And speaking of tropes, are we going to segue into our I think next we segue? <laughs> so when we were talking about this episode and what we wanted to talk about, we we kind of thought about how many space operas and other platforms, sort of video games and and things, will have kind of. Um, what we kind of think of as trope worlds, like you have like the ice planet mm-hmm. or the lava planet. Yeah. And I, in some ways that is possibly because of what you were talking about, with like kind of the planet hopping and the, and the travel being so much a part of it, a hallmark of, of space opera to some degree that you have these like quickly identifiable spaces. Mm-hmm. So I mean, like, what's, what's a favorite? What's a favorite one that you've encountered? Yeah, I, I I I have so many favorites. It's like you know picking a favorite child, but um, I think ocean planets are really neat. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and I, yeah, and I think I think it's because of how our own ocean was kind of our first frontier and is still in some ways our last frontier of exploration. Uh, you you think about space opera also as kind of um, the ancestor uh, of space of, of ocean exploration books you have people who like master and commander type stuff and you know going out on the high seas and and doing their thing and that's why we end up with a lot of space opera stories about pirates and like there, there's a lot of overlap i think between ocean exploration and space exploration um in terms of our histories and our fictions it also you think about it being you know space the final frontier it's like yeah it the ocean is still kind of our final frontier there are so many parts of it that are still a mystery to us it's vast it's it's deep it's it's unknowable and there are just so many cool animals living in our oceans and that i feel like is a kind of diversity that i love to bring to space as well and it feels like it is a natural thing that can happen on an ocean planet uh unaffected by whatever the the jerks up on land are doing there's a reason why we've imported so many navy tropes into into space opera and other space-based science fiction but ocean planets are good to because, like, if you're going to do a, a world that seems to be largely just one biome, like, ocean planets, A, oceans mm-hmm. are not just one biome, because oceans can have all sorts of different biomes within the ocean. But yeah, they're layered. Like, there, there's, there are certain ones of those tropes where it's like, I can at least buy, okay, this would actually work. Like, okay, if, if the world is, you know, 95% ocean as opposed to 70% ocean, sure buy it same thing with ice planets mm-hmm. like yeah if it's far away from the star yeah it's an ice planet it's not it's not probably good but the other ones where it's like the whole thing's a jungle really the whole planet <laughs> all of it all of oh, it but it's how did that work well and it, it does kind of start to, to introduce that that potential pitfall of some of the trope worlds which is like right. the believability factor mm-hmm. like so we're, I'm, we're watching uh, i was i've been watching star wars with the kids like introducing them so we're we're on Empire Strikes Back, and of course it opens on Ice Planet, and like my nine-year-old has a ton of questions. <laughs> of course. So she's like, is the whole thing like this? All of it? And so the animal that they're writing, is that is that like, look, where did that giant Yeti come from? And I'm like, okay, actually, kind of good questions from an evolutionary standpoint, because it's a very inhospitable environment. Not really sure how life, did, let's don't, don't push it too far. You don't want to push this one too far. What do the mounts eat? Where do they, are they look, they, they yeah, look like grazing they animals? They like, like grazing animals. Their teeth appear to be you know grinding not not tearing so i yeah i don't know and are they I, like filter feeders or are they getting their nutrients from tardigrades in the ice like it doesn't make any maybe. sense maybe yeah. yeah it doesn't doesn't really quite 
are, are there in fact layers of, of old grass somewhere from when it wasn't purely an ice planet? Oh. Mushrooms in caves? What are we? What, what is lichen? going on? Are, we are they somewhat that? photosynthetic? We can't I mean, lichen, right? That's not realistic. Yeah. <laughs> so I mean, there it's is a that mystery. If you, push, <laughs> if you push some of the tropes too far, suddenly you find yourself not enjoying the space opera for what it was intended to be, which is a rollicking good time, oh, yeah. not a lesson in biology. So I could believe, like, that, say, the Tauntauns were from a different planet that they just brought along as, like, look, we need something that will be okay on the ice planet. That... Right, like, kind of like bringing the the, um, the sled dogs yes. to Antarctica. Right. right. But it's, actually, I would argue that it's clear the Tauntauns are not local because the Tauntaun dies halfway across the, you know, so it's like you, your Tauntaun won't make it past the first marker. So it's clear it's like they can handle it, but to a degree. They're, they're, so yeah, maybe they maybe they aren't local, or it was or it was local and being misused, and because that's another thing. Right. That, yes. Well, frankly, that's, humans we, do. We do that. Oops. Yeah. That the, the Tauntaun wanted to huddle up in its lichen cave. <laughs> it cannot handle being ridden. <laughs> also, all this. Yeah. <laughs> it like, needed a break. Not, it needed to be. I am watered. not meant for this. Yeah. It's like a llama. It's like, no. It's like, do you know what time me. it is, bro? We're supposed to be in the cave right now. We're not supposed to be out in this storm. You're, you're not We're thinking not in portals. Right? This is not a good idea. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Where it's like, no, no, this makes no sense. You are making bad choices, human. And, and this is your fault, frankly. But yeah, I mean, that's sort of, you know, you have those potential pitfalls of when you're crafting a world. Well, do you, if you are a world building masochist, are you going to dig in and explain? To yourself, even. Where did the megafauna on your ice world come from? Is it a remnant from something that existed before it was an ice world, which just evolution just worked very differently here? Were they transplants from some point at which some civilization tried to colonize the planet and it just didn't work out? So they left their tauntauns. A zoo ship crashed and it's just, you know, it's it's survived. You can write off almost anything with a zoo ship. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, I it, like trope worlds. Um, one one of the things again that I mentioned about sci-fi, or not sci-fi, space opera, is that you can often get away with more stuff. Like hand wavium is easier to deploy in space opera than it is in other genres, I think, and subgenres. So tropes world trope worlds can potentially violate the laws of physics as written, which you may or may not care too much about, depending on what you're doing in your space opera. Um, but it's that if you go too far, if that inner nine-year-old starts asking questions, <laughs> then you are breaking suspension of disbelief. At that point, what is happening is you are losing the reader, you are losing their trust. For example, people having a plainclothes fight on a lava planet when the heat probably <laughs> should be killing them, for example. Just th- I'm just putting it out there as an option. Just... It was very dramatic. It was very cool. It was beautiful to look at. And maybe not very realistic. I don't know. Just, you know. Uh, but do we care? Do we care is the question. As much as we all love a good The Floor is Lava game, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> just standing on a rock that's floating on it is probably not enough. So you have that, that tension between, you know, realism and... and maintaining your audience's you know credibility mm-hmm. and vibes and vibes yeah. are important vibes, yes. are crucial. vibes and aesthetics so, yeah 
they can go a long way. And again, it depends on the genre. And because every genre and subgenre will come with reader expectations. And so space opera, like I said, I think that reader expectations allow you a broader latitude for playing around with this stuff. Um, you, you Instead of having to have the explanation of exactly how the FTL works, you can just be like, they flipped on the FTL drive and then move on. Because the reader is not interested in knowing how the FTL drive works in this particular system. In a different story, it might be central to the plot. I'm thinking also of things like uh, the novel Six Wakes, in which a replicator technology is invented um, or introduced rather. And, and, you know, one of the first things that happens is somebody has to test it by like 3D printing a turkey or something like that. And, um, and that actually is a major plot point. It's something that in the world of that book, and that's by Mer Lafferty, um, in the world of that book, this is like, oh, this is a cool world building thing, but it actually was very important. And so in space opera, you're you're tending to hand wave the things that are actually just not important to the plot is what it comes down to is you are saying, okay, yes, this is a lava planet for the purposes of what I'm doing with it. This is what you need to know about it. This is what's important about it. But the other stuff is maybe not vital to your understanding of the situation. I think also you can get away with a certain amount of utter nonsense if you just embrace no, this is our nonsense. Like, I, I think a lot about how in the Star Trek universe, like, the idea that we would have a bunch of different humanoid aliens who not only can successfully have sex with each other, but have children, sometimes even by accident, like, that's that's kind of like, no, would never, ever, ever work. But Star Trek has just fully made it, no, that's our nonsense. That's just how things work here. And so people yep. are like, fine, okay. I've, you've got you've got a half Klingon, half Ferengi. Why not? Okay, mm-hmm. let's run with it. Go with it. And those are kinds of things that you could potentially explain or address in different ways. I'm thinking, I uh, spoilers for the end of Mass Effect 3, a very old game that you may or may not ever want to play. But um, there, yeah, uh, in those games, I my character romance is Garrus. And so they do have a conversation at one point where it's like, well, if we survive this, we maybe, maybe we want to have kids. And they acknowledge that it may or may not be physically possible. And then they immediately are like, we can adopt. <laughs> and so there are ways <laughs> of approaching the situation. You can think about technology. Farscape also had like a, like a tongue test lick test to tell whether you were genetically compatible to reproduce with others and it was a that kissing was test. one way of handling it <laughs> was it a kissing test oh i see I, all i remember of the episode is there was like a kiss each other <laughs> I, I mean yes honestly it, and we wanted it are you saying that you did not want to no. see them kiss because i let me tell you the burn was so slow oh, on that show. Delightfully so. My heart. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then and then and then a thing happened which I won't spoil and then I stopped watching it out of anger. Anyway, so <laughs> but uh, we can have a far yeah, so, conversation later. But yeah, <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's another story, and it should be told at another time. So there are technological ways to deal with this, and again, space opera will allow you a certain amount of hand waving that you can just be like, oh, yes, they they kiss and they have this this slip that practically like you peed on it or something, and it tells you if you can reproduce with this other person. Done. They look. It looks for a chemical. It looks for a DNA. It looks for whatever. Um, you can just make it up. You don't have to explain how it works. You just have to explain that it works, I guess. I was considering, too, that when it comes to the element of believability of worlds, the amount of time that you spend there starts to matter. And one of the great things with space opera is that you kind of skip town before you have to dig too 
deep most of the time. So we get our exciting scene on Hoth, mm-hmm. and then we move on. Yeah. We don't spend the rest of the movie hanging on the ice planet, inviting the audience to really pick apart, like, so, how does this, how does this work exactly? Because you don't have to. You've moved on. You used the scene for the, the aesthetics and the vibe and the, and the reasons you were going to use it, and then you've moved on to a new cool place to kind of... Yeah, definitely a lot of places, depending on how one note they are and what their purpose is, uh, a lot of times they are better for just like one scene, one chapter, as opposed to a full story. And again, that is one of the kind of features, not bugs, of space opera is that it does tend to flit around the universe uh, pretty, you know, flagrantly. Again, regardless of the laws of physics, not necessarily caring about travel time. Uh, sometimes travel time is a central part of the story, thinking about like Becky Chambers, you know, long way to a small angry planet. Travel time is the entire story is about travel time, essentially. And they were all, again, confined to one place. And so you can just find that as a space opera book. But is it a space opera book if they're really just kind of in one location going to another location for the entire book? Um, it, it is. It doesn't Same matter. Six like, weeks. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They're stuck on one ship going to a place the whole time. Um, and and this is where subgenre blurs and, and gets messy. And ultimately, you're like, do I care? It's a good story and I'm enjoying myself. So, But yeah, I, I think that having that kind of flitting from place to place does fit well with this, this, the way that space opera works in terms of planetary flitting and exploration, um, just going from place to place. And then you have planets that say they they don't have any life. Um, And most of them probably don't. Like, you look at just our solar system, what are the odds? You roll the dice, and if eight out of the nine planets in the solar system, I'm counting Pluto, damn it. If eight out of the nine... (laughs) Count Pluto. If if eight out of the nine planets in our solar system have no life on them, as far as we know, Mars, maybe? Some moons of Saturn, maybe? Or Jupiter? Big question marks. We're not sure. We're pretty sure not, though. Um... But that said, in that one tiny fragment of the universe that we got from this recent telescope picture, as they describe in the article, you, you, if you held a grain of sand at arm's length and looked up at the sky, that's the amount of sky in that picture. A grain of sand's worth of sky. And it's got multiple galaxies in it. And each of those galaxies is full of just millions of stars. How many planets are in there? And the odds that one of them has life like ours i mean this this is an argument that many people have mathematicians scientists etc etc i choose to for the purposes of space opera i choose to believe the probabilities are in our favor of finding uh extraterrestrial life somewhere somehow then again the picture we got is also technically four and a half billion years old oops so how many of those planets are gone we don't know Big question marks, big question marks. Nonetheless, most of those planets have no life. And so placing life on a trope world then can be challenging um, just because the odds are against it. But then that does mean you can have your ice world, your lava world, what have you, with no life on it, except for the people that you tend to, you, you place on it for whatever reason. And the other thing with that, with that flitting about is whole planets serve the same purpose within space opera that like, cities and towns do within fantasy of like you know mm-hmm. that they're you know they're not necessarily more than just like a, a waypoint even though you know planets are big y'all but even still i mean and that's part of the challenge also is trying to make it feel like there's more to it even if on some level you only treat it each planet like it's a small town yeah absolutely and then speaking of that 
you have the opposite, which is the single city planet. (laughs) And that's something that often also comes up in in space opera where, and that is again, absolutely a trope world where you have just one city that has taken over the entire planet. And sometimes you have an entire like mechanic, like Cybertron or something like that, where it just is a constructed planet as far as you can, it's a robot, it's one, it's one giant robot. But that can get really complicated because all of the other questions we have still apply. Like, is there a lack of local agriculture? Do they have mining? Where are they getting all their raw materials from? Do they have manufacturing? Are they literally importing every single thing to that city planet? What what do they have? Do they have communal gardens? Is, is Are they using green space? Are they using technology to grow their food? What, what's going on with that? Uh, and sufficiently uh, advanced technology can often answer these questions in space opera in a, in a way that magic can often answer that question in a fantasy book. You can just be like, oh yeah, uh, they have, you know, magical cold cabinets instead of refrigerators or whatever, you know, like, yeah, ma- they put a stasis spell on that food so it wouldn't rot. Like, you you can play that game, you know, across the board, whether it be magic or technology. Um, but those kinds of, where do they get water? If, if it's a city, what kind of weather do they have? Is like, what is the atmosphere composed of if you have no trees contributing oxygen? Do you, like, what is going on there is the question. Um, and, and these are all things that, as again, your nine-year-old is asking these questions and you're like, uh, they have machines. Yep. The end. <laughs> One of the things I really liked in, in uh, John Scalzi's uh, Collapsing Empire series was this idea of like, you know, they have this very intricate form of interplanetary travel, mm-hmm. but no single planet within the Empire can survive on its own because it's like this very delicate balance of like every single one of them needs something that's done at a, at a completely different planet. And the fact that their method of hyperspace travel is disintegrating makes them all go, oh, Okay, we're we're, we're in deep trouble now because <laughs> our entire system is based on the idea that we all need each other, and oh no. And that's something we're seeing right now on our own planet when when supply chain issues occur, and they can occur very quickly and very forcefully. Then so many things disintegrate. Then you have shelves at the grocery store that are completely empty. Then you have people who are struggling to find ways to feed their families, and it becomes a very very rapid disintegration, like you said, of of the whole system. And that's something that can be incorporated into plot, as with Scalzi's books, where yes, you acknowledge the the flaws and the fracture points in all of these kinds of trope worlds. You figure out where are the places where they can fall apart. And those are exploitatable for plot purposes. And so like world building is at the core. It's it's the trifecta of world building and character and plot. And, and they all come together to form a cohesive whole. And so world building being that sort of third leg of the stool, it it can inform the other two in very meaningful ways by creating plot, by creating characters, because then you can have a character who is like, who is most impacted by the collapse of this empire. And a lot of people will be frankly. And so you can kind of have your pick of any of them and decide, well, what are they doing as this is going on? How are they, you know, uh, transporting things when it becomes impossible? What are they doing on their planet to try to fix the problem? How are they trying to have agriculture? Are they trying to import seeds? Like what is going on? What are they doing? Well, and you can think too about, you know, all of the, 
ways in which humans gun a human, that some of the ways that people deal with environments are positive Mm -hmm. and some of the ways that humans deal with environments are exploitative Mm -hmm. and so if you think about like that city planet and think like where are they where are they getting stuff Mm -hmm. well maybe they have you know moon mining colonies Mm -hmm. that they're sending all their prisoners to and they have terrible lives (laughs) but you wouldn't see that if you if you you know you kind of choose what to show choose what not to show but you there's you can you can take things in multiple directions Mm -hmm. in terms of how do people survive in spaces it's not always nice Mm -hmm. sometimes you're Sometimes you're bringing a non-native tauntaun onto Hoth, <laughs> writing it to death, and that's not that's not it's not nice. Definitely not good. So no, you know no. we do we not have love. we have ways in which we can explore the, all of all of the myriad ways in which humans are both innovative and also exploitative. Yeah, even, especially when you boil things down to these trope worlds where the challenges are stark and unique and you know we can pick pick them apart very easily what's the challenge of living here well we can deal with it in an innovative way and maybe it's also not not so nice to other people yeah yeah animals or the environment or all three yeah and again those are those are potential plot points for you those are potential character types for you uh, is is who is harmed by this who is helped by this and how are they in conflict with each other i know that western stories often are very centered on conflict and drama and all that kind of stuff as opposed to a more collectivist mentality of oh no we have a problem and now we are all going to come together to fix this problem instead it is oh no we have a problem every man for himself and and those are sort of spectrums that you can use to figure out these stories and figure out these worlds and how the different kinds of characters and factions are operating on them. Um, but it all does depend on on what your plots and characters are doing at that point. Talking about, again, like how one trope is this, how, how, how uh, sorry, one note as opposed to tropey. When, when you do push that suspension of disbelief too far, when you no longer have the reader's trust, um, losing it in one place if it's the world building, for example, means you lose it in others. Because then whatever it is that you've established for the world, they're maybe not going to believe in your characters as much. It's like, well, but if the world is like this and that doesn't make sense, then why is the character doing this stuff? Then because that doesn't make sense either because it comes out of the world building. Uh, and likewise, the plot, it's like, wait a minute, but this is really, this, this why wouldn't they just is the, always the question <laughs> that you as the writer have to answer when you are putting all of these things together, you know, if you have a city world that you've built uh, and it is entirely reliant on outside trade, you will probably have someone who will say, why didn't you just have agriculture on the planet? There are lots of ways to do agriculture uh, without having vast fields of, of plants being grown or there there are different ways of you know having cities with green space with water space you know like there, there are ways of organizing things to make it so that they aren't entirely reliant on others why would you not though um and so these are the kinds of questions you may have to end up explaining <laughs> I, why wouldn't uh, the, the government do this perfectly logical thing <laughs> well, well then well, i'm making so many faces right now <laughs> <laughs> but and so sometimes the answer is just it's greed it's inefficiencies it's incompetence there are there are answers to these questions it's not that there aren't but what it comes down to is you have to be the first person to ask the question why didn't they just mm-hmm. and you have to be the one to come up with an answer to why didn't they just anticipating the reader who is going to ask why didn't they just 
So I have a, a space opera setting that I've yet to finish a novel in, but because part of my problem is a world-building masochist problem in that space is big and there's no mm-hmm. borders. So therefore, mm-hmm. I keep building more and more out. <laughs> it's like, because there's no logical stopping point of like, oh, okay, I have now defined all the geography. There's always more geography. So yes. in, in how, how, how do you get yourself to stop and just be like, I, I've defined enough. I don't, <laughs> I don't need to do more. Short, short of someone coming in and just slapping the world building dock out of your hands. Right. <laughs> well, but yeah. part of me always thinks about like, like the, the classic, you know, Mose Eisley, Deep Space Nine, the the bar that's filled with all sorts of different aliens that are just all interacting with each other. And part of my brain goes, okay, in order for that bar to logically exist, I need a system where there's that many aliens and that much mm-hmm. that much interaction and that much like trade and economy in place that they all can be in the same bar. And that works. And so that's mm-hmm. so much of what I do, I feel, is is based on justifying the bar. <laughs> I feel that because I love those bars. I love yes. having them. I love them existing. Um, they are my fave. Um, and so I think that... I, I'm gonna be bad. Uh, I don't. I don't think you should care. Just keep going. Make up new <laughs> things. It's fine. I'm gonna give you permission to just do it because I think it's actually fine. I, I, why not? I, if you want to have, if you want to force constraints on yourself, if you want to say I'm not allowed to make up more than this because it's too much and I'm just going. I'm going too far. <laughs> things. Things that can constrain this. Travel time limitations. If you physically cannot get them, like what are the planets that are within a reasonable travel time? Even using FTL, even going faster than light, depending on how much faster than light you're going, there may still be time restrictions getting from one place to another. Um, You may have physical restrictions. There may be uh, debris fields or black holes or other kinds of... uh, uh, horrifying events that kind of limit your ability. I'm thinking, I just started playing Mass Mass Effect Andromeda last night again, and so it's got, I think the Scourge is what they call it, which is some sort of like dark matter bramble that happens in space. And so wherever that bramble is, you can't go because it will destroy your ship. Uh, Thinking also of like the ship graveyard at the center of the Milky Way galaxy that they they put together uh, in the second game, where it's like, unless you have the technology to navigate this, you will simply crash and die. And so at some point it becomes maybe not here there be dragons, but here there be an unstable uh, thing that causes everybody who goes there to die, so don't. (laughs) <laughs> and so that's one way of doing it. Um, I use uh, portals, basically like warp gates in my books that you just kind of change the coordinates on the gate, go from one to the next. But the limitation is you can only go to a place that has a gate. And so that's another way to fence it. Uh, I think Cowboy Bebop does a similar thing where it's like, here is a thing with a toll booth, basically. And if you want to get from Earth to Mars, from Mars to Jupiter, you got to pay the toll, first of all. And then you got to use this thing. You're not going to get there by yourself. Otherwise, this is our, you know, in the same way that Mass Effect has the um, uh, Mass Effect, like, you know, the, the slingshots. You can have that kind of physical, like, you can only get from one place to another using this device, using this thing. And then if it's a toll booth, 
you now have a monetary reason that people can't go from place to place on top of the fact that maybe spaceships are genuinely expensive and uh, you maybe you have space buses, maybe you have, uh, you know, space Uber, but maybe you don't. And so there is a monetary limitation on how people can get from one place to another. So you can... And then that's not even talking about like treaties and wars and other kinds of right. stuff that can absolutely restrict it. But if you want to if you want to force yourself to be confined, those are some ways that you can be like, well, they can't go farther than this because there's no gate there. So right. it would take 700 years and ain't <laughs> nobody got time for that. And from a motivational perspective, Marshall, you could continue to tell yourself people want to read your book someday. <laughs> so you have to Details. start writing it at Details. some point. Just so, saying. Though so much, so much of what goes in my brain is just like, just for, like the amount of infrastructure that has to exist for that bar to exist. And so therefore I'm like, I have to justify the bar. <laughs> Yeah. Was it saying it was like like to make a peanut butter sandwich you must first invent the universe? Like <laughs> Right. But even 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 going beyond this, like to make a peanut butter sandwich you have to start with wheat, you have to start with peanuts, you have to start with mm-hmm. grapes, which are originate from three different parts of the world and then you're like Yeah, there's a lot and my brain goes there too often sometimes. But mm-hmm. <laughs> that's what this podcast is all about. <laughs> In order to create even um, a a richly dynamic trope world, you can go small, Mm -hmm. like, how do I explain this bar? Yes. (laughs) Or you can can blow it out, too, Mm -hmm. and kind of say, okay, so how is this, how does this this space fit within other spaces? How is it related to other spaces? Yeah. Um, How does this fit geographically, spatially, um, even psychologically? How do people think about this space to kind of situate it into the world at large that you're building, what are some other ways that you can make your worlds feel dynamic and fully realized, even if you're playing with trope worlds and, and kind of that could have the potential to feel in one note? Yeah, I think that uh, definitely doing your research, I'm sure it's never, we all know doing research is, is the way to go. But you, if you think about the realities of the tropes that you're working with, that can definitely give you potential avenues for expanding them beyond the single note. Uh, using the ice planet, for example, what kinds of atmospheric uh, crust, mantle conditions would create a world like that? Would it be would it be uniform throughout? Would it have differences at different latitudes? How near or far from its sun does it have to be? How would exposure to the sunlight, the heat, the radiation impact it in different places? What are the lengths of the day and night cycles? What, are, what seasons does it have, if any? Um, who lives there? Why? How? And then you can expand from that and look into how, for example, researchers in Antarctica live. What are, what are their lives like? What are their daily lives like? Um, astronauts, how do they live? Uh, how do people in biodomes or underwater habitats live? Or if this is a world that has flora and fauna, a world that has uh, a, a sentient life, you can look to indigenous people and cultures because they often have just very sophisticated methods uh, that don't rely necessarily on te- technobabble and hand wavium and all that stuff uh, to function. And they have perfectly wonderful and robust lives. And it's, it's very easy, I think, to forget that so many problems have already been solved by people who were living here before they were wiped out. Uh, but looking to those to their lives and, and their cultures and how they solved so many problems many moons ago and have lived 
in perfect harmony since then uh, can be a really useful thing uh, as well, depending on where you want to take that trope world. Um, again, and, and that can vary if you have, like, again, the ice world. If you have your jungle world, which we talked about jungles, you can't have a whole world of jungle. It's just not. <laughs> this is where you start to get, like, even even someone who is not an expert reader is going to be like, yeah, but, but like, at the poles also? <laughs> the jungle at the equator for sure at, <laughs> at the, the equator, equator everywhere the <laughs> all of it the whole thing the whole, the um whole. yeah and and some readers are experts like and and unless you also are an expert uh or you do exhaustive research into all of this stuff and consult with your expert readers um they're likely to be the first people that you're going to lose as you are putting these worlds together you're going to have somebody who's like a volcanologist who's going to be like this is not how lava works you you what <laughs> what this is not what lava does uh i don't w- why did you think that this is lava no also are they your target reader? And that's something that you can only answer for yourself. Um, and it, chances are that those are the people that are going to be reading the sci-fi books. I, it, and this goes for all stuff, right? Like a lawyer reading a book that has lawyers in it that are not reasonable lawyers are going to be like, oh, that's not how law is. Space law works different. Yeah. And then you're like, well, space law. But having a foundation in how actual law works can be really useful for then defining how space law works, how law varies from place to place. And having that kind of broader understanding of how on our world all of this stuff works in microcosm because that can then mean you can expand it to a lot of different places in various and, and diverse ways that are really cool. Thinking about like Charles Charles Soule, who is a lawyer, writing She-Hulk, who is a lawyer. It makes for a better lawyer story because he knows how lawyering works. Talking to geologists or planetologists or what have you about how these kinds of worlds physically would potentially function can be very useful. Uh, And finding people who live in environments that replicate the kinds of conditions that you want to talk about and, and, and put together for these worlds can then enrich whatever it is that you're doing. I think, too, one thing that can be fun to, to think about is that there's a difference between aesthetics and, like, literalism. Like, we can call it an ice planet. Is it really the whole thing, though? <laughs> or is it just a very cold environment where maybe the poles are, in fact, totally inhospitable, but you get a little bit closer to the equator and it's more like our tundra? And it does melt occasionally. But it's still an ice planet because, I mean, it's mostly it's mostly ice. So you can kind of, like, push the boundaries of like, how literally are we going to take this? And it can still have those aesthetics and still have those vibes that you want to play with. And, you know, you could have your your jungle planet. Yeah, all the places that you could go are jungle because the rest is ocean. Yeah. So, hey, <laughs> you know, it's still the jungle planet. That's mm-hmm. how we think about it. That's how we refer to it. Mm-hmm. But, there, you know, you can, you can kind of play around a little bit to capture the aesthetics in a way that allow you to to be a little bit more pragmatic if you if you need to. Yeah, and maybe it's the 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 jungle planet is not entirely jungle, but the bar is at the jungle. So that's where you're going to go because that's where you want to be. And also I was thinking like the ice planet can be effectively the equivalent of Antarctica is here that like mm-hmm. yeah, there's an outpost there. It kind of sucks. You don't really want to go unless you have to, <laughs> or if like, you're really oh, into that sort of thing. Oh, I short straw. I don't want to go there. <laughs> or I do want to go there. I want to be the place where science is happening, and it's all yeah. happening here, where we're drilling giant holes in the ice and pulling up cores and studying layers and finding ancient evils. Wait, no, not that one. Don't do that one. Please, no, please, bad idea. Please. 
scientist stuff. But it is, it is more of a, the only people you'll find there are the people who need to or have to be there for one reason or another. Yeah. And it's not like vibrant city with an economy because, because it's the ice planet. Or that's where the pirates hide. Yeah, exactly. E- right. Even even planets that are that are not inhabited, say. So I have a lava world in Fault Tolerance because I do love lava worlds. They're very fun. And so I did do try to do a lot of research about how lava works. But another thing you can do is then combine it with something else. And so I... Um, uh, y- Talk about like the variations that you can have. You know, um, the the lava planet it 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 rotates, right? And so, what if you combine it with something that is it's a tidally locked planet? So only one side is facing the sun at any given time. So then, what would the other side of a tidally locked lava planet look like? And then, what if it's not completely tidally locked? What like what if it's just rotating very very slowly? And so you end up with, say, one side that would have surface temperatures that are high enough to maintain the molten rock that is roiling out of your core of molten rock, whatever that might be composed of. But um, then on the other half, you have these twilight zones of stuff that is either cooling or heating up uh, and then potentially just really cool surface features on the dark side, like basically like ripples of lava cooled lava frosting kind of stuff or depending on the chemical composition you can end up having just sheets of glass that if you have a very active uh tectonic kind of situation the glass is going to break it's going to it's going to be frosted it's going to be cracked it's going to be maybe just glittering fields of ice chunks or rather glass chunks there's so many ways that you can play with combining different elements of potential trope worlds with other things you can have a rogue planet where it doesn't even have a sun it's just flying through space somewhere uh just you know beholden to no one and maybe that's the pirate planet maybe the pirates all know what the trajectory of this world is and so they are able to calculate how to meet each other there but that's a closely guarded secret it's like treasure planet nobody knows how to get there except if you know how to get there and then if you do that means that you're a cool pirate or whatever again you bring up treasure planet that's a perfect example of just like (laughs) the nonsense works the way we want it to work like you know Mm -hmm. you're just flying through space on a on a boat why because it's cool shut up (laughs) it is so cool (laughs) it's like how does this work like the space doesn't i don't care you're you're sailing across the stars on a boat and you can like go out on a rowboat and dip your hands in something i don't know but it's cool the captain is a bipedal cat voiced by like emma thompson wearing a tricorner hat like why are you arguing your where your argument is invalid like don't argue it's great (laughs) emma thompson is a space pirate cat your argument is invalid that's it it's done exactly and again that's knowing your readers if if that that is if the person who is going to argue about that the person who is going to be like but solar sails don't work that way what are how are they keeping the air in how is the whole it looks like wood is it not wood what is that it's like that's not that's not your target audience that's the person who's who's asking too many questions and you're like did you know there's a whole other series over here that you're gonna like a lot better than this and that's okay it's okay okay. to not like things it's okay we have so many millions of books more more books not not as many books as there are planets in the universe but like so many books out there and it's okay to not like all of them (laughs) yeah well it's a lot um but yeah just go with what you like and that's okay and and if space opera is not your thing it's not your thing and if it is then you're not going to be worrying about how they keep the air in uh the open air ship that flies through space because that's what you came for that's what you came for 
You came for adventures. You came for swashbuckling. Buckle those swashes in space. You, you came for vibes, and that's vibes at yes. at eleven. And so the world building is is not necessarily. And I think that this is something. I don't know if we've ever overtly said this on this show, but I think that it is worth saying that world building is not just about answering the pragmatic questions, mm-hmm. but about creating a space that is enjoyable to read and enjoyable to dive into and to, to play and to splash around in. Um, and I think that that's, you know, a fun feature that you get to explore more deeply with Talking Space Opera because you're allowed to kind of say like, you know what? Yeah, okay. I'm not going to explain scientifically how that works. Screw it. <laughs> how does it work? But, it works well. That's how it works. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. That's how it works. And I'm going to spend more time thinking about how can I make this a reader's experience in this world? How can I make this world something that people want to dive into and have that sense of adventure and discovery? I think that's one of the fun things about space opera is this like, you feel like you're discovering alongside the characters. You know, you're kind of going along for the ride and there's this feeling of exploration and uncovering stuff and finding new spaces and it's like it's like a cruise where you're stopping in a different port every time and going on an adventure, but in space and hopefully with cats and swashbuckling. Yeah, and <laughs> space opera as a genre has a lot of, um, historically speaking, has a lot of very colonialist roots. Like you, you have um, people who are finding new frontiers, but often those new frontiers have people in them in the same way that our planet. Whoops! Uh, people kept discovering things and planting flags while the natives watched them and went, what are they doing? Why, what is that flag about? I don't understand. Um, because why though? Why flags? Uh, I think it's Terry Pratchett with that. But anyway... And so a lot of newer space opera is really contending with that kind of history of colonialization and exploration and uh, in in slightly better ways. Even with Star Trek, you had things like the Prime Directive, which was a very explicit guiding principle that, you know, tried to be cautious when first contact occurred. But the first (laughs) Star Trek series, so many first contacts. That it was just like, we're going to be really careful about this. And then Kirk was like, nah. I'm going to wreck it. <laughs> um, <laughs> just, just wreck it, Ralph. Is no, and, and the, the, the rule is we don't, we don't interfere unless we think we really, really need to interfere. Right. And, uh, and, and we really, really want to, you know, it really, really seems like I, yeah, I wasn't going to interfere, but uh, <laughs> they had orange Fanta and I really wanted one. And... Who amongst us would not? (laughs) But yeah, and I mean, I'm not going to say that it was like uniformly bad or anything like that because it wasn't. It it had, there was a lot of very thoughtful stuff that came out of of every sort of Star Trek that we've had, every iteration of it, because I think it it was initially just founded as as a thing that wanted to think about these kinds of of problems. Um, But those concerns just the fact that it even had a prime directive was uh was was good because it meant that they were thinking about it they were thinking about how to deal with this stuff when a lot of space opera uh sometimes the opposite was true where colonizers would bust in and just be treated as heroes for whatever reason um again it, it's like it's like seeing the history books and it's like don't oh, worry yeah. aliens, an american is here <laughs> yeah like what <laughs> what are you doing no, no, absolutely not. Uh, yeah, the, and and then the English showed up and were welcome with open arms. It's like they what they <laughs> no, <laughs> who who amongst you? And so like the the thing about space opera that can be different is that 
because you have so many planets out there, potentially there are ones that have nobody on them. And so I think that appeals to a lot of readers and writers, the notion of a truly uninhabited uh, frontier that you can feel not guilty about exploiting or colonizing or settling or whatever you want to call it. Um, and and also I think that a lot of writers now are trying to create space operas that are more hopeful in the sense of we're not going there to exploit it. We're going there to live and live with the planet instead of in an antagonistic relationship. Uh, thinking about how places now will uh, give rights to the land, give rights to a river, give rights to a mountain. And then those people become basically the appointed defenders of those rights uh, in some form or fashion, defending them not just against each other who are you know, settling on this place, but also against any outsiders who might be coming in trying to exploit the natural resources. And that, I think, is a more hopeful kind of space opera. It maybe has its own problematic aspects, but um, it's something that I think people are thinking about more than they used to before. Thinking also about tourism, right? What kinds of people are traveling through these different places? Are they mercenaries? Are they true tourists that are taking pictures and, or taking souvenirs and whatever? And like tourist economies can be very exploitative. And so that's another element that people are starting to think about with space opera is, you know, for all that we have these people flitting from place to place, if they are going from bar to bar, then what is the economy of the bar world? Is it a tourist economy? If so, what does that mean for the, the locals? And what does that mean for the people who are going through it? Um, there, there are ways that you can deal with this in the plot. And sometimes it is just a single line that you can throw out to acknowledge the existence of these problems, because maybe they don't have anything to do with what you're doing with the plot. But you do want to just be cognizant be aware and acknowledge them. Cool. Sorry, I told you I had a lot of notes. So I was yeah, not lying. They were great notes, too. I love them, every single one of them. I was going to say, and on, on, on that note, we are, we are kind of coming to the close of our hour together. And I think that is a really good place to consider kind of like mulling on and leaving our listeners with that, like, how can... How can world building raise these questions in, in different ways, new ways, hopeful ways? And how can that be part of the world building itself, which is really a cool feature that you've talked about. Um, and as is our want, we like to ask our guests to leave us with a souvenir. Um, though, though we be not space tourists, we still like to ask for souvenirs <laughs> um, of something that we can bring back to our own world that we are live world building um, on the show. Uh, I will I will offer to you since we have actually discussed it somewhat uh, explicitly. I, I will offer to you a very large tree that produces fruit intended for megafauna. So these are very large fruits that have very large seeds. And unfortunately, those seeds are passed through the digestive system of the megafauna. But fortunately, that means that they find a very lovely nutrient rich place in which to grow new trees. I like it. Are there any special features to this tree that we should be aware of? Particular leaf, bark, scent, flowers? It has a rough... shape of fruit? Anything that we should be marking down? We'll say it has a rough bark because uh, the megafauna like to rub against it. It scratches their itches. It's nice. It feels good. Um, And I think it has very broad leaves. Uh, because it, it, it gives them a little nice shady rest spot for them to uh, to eat their fruits and then move along. I like it. I like this sounds lot. like a nice tree to hang out under. I mean, unless 
Unless the animals have spent a lot of time under the tree after eating the fruit, in which case... Then it's going to smell yeah. Ho- yeah. Hopefully they moved on. They, they need to move on. And potentially one of those fruits, if, if, you, if you are being cautious and, and uh, only taking one at a time, one fruit could feed a lot of people for a while. And, and these fruits can be eaten by people as well? Yes, and they are okay. probably delicious. We'll, we'll say that they can be used in a variety of cuisines and methods. And uh, yeah, they're, they're maybe not a staple crop for, for the people because they are needed by the megafauna. But Excellent. So we have giant fruit pie somewhere in our world, thanks to Valerie. I, I appreciate it very much. Jams. Maybe it's like avocado toast. Maybe just spread it on the, on the toast. Ooh, yeah. I was going to say, it feels very avocado, but bigger. Yeah. I love it. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for our fruit, and thank you for the conversation. It's been a delight. Thank you so much for having me. Hi, you. Thanks for listening to this episode of World Building for Masochists and letting us help you overcomplicate your writing life. Our next full episode goes up on August 17th, where we'll be talking about just what vacations and getaways might mean in a fantasy culture. But before that, all three of your hosts will be appearing at ArmadilloCon in Austin from August 5th to 7th. This sci-fi literary convention will have some great special guests, including Darcy Little Badger, Fonda Lee, Ellen Clages, Lauren Ray Snow, and as Toastmaster, our own Cass Morris, as well as dozens of other great SFF writers and artists. If you can come, please come say hello to any of us. We'll be thrilled to meet you. And we'll be recording a live bonus episode there, so stay alert for that. We would also like to remind you that voting for the Hugo Awards ends on August 11th, and we are nominated for Best Fancast. If you are interested in supporting us and voting in the Hugos, everything you need to know can be found at the website for this year's Worldcon in Chicago, where the three of us will be together again at shycon.org. If you want to know more about your hosts and the fantastical books we write, links to all of that information is on our website at worldbuildingformasochists.podbeam.com. We really hope you liked this episode. If you did, please do take a minute to tell a friend, shout about us on the internet, or leave a review on iTunes. If you've got questions or just want to tell us how cute we are, there's a number of ways to contact us. We're on Twitter as at WorldBuildCast, and our email is WorldBuildCast at gmail.com. We also have a Discord chat room linked in the About the Show page of our website if you want to come chat with us and other fans of the podcast. We'd love for you to share the worlds you're making and help us all build until it hurts. Mm-hmm.